Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. This guy Wayne White put on a pretty crazy puppet show in his art history class. Puppets all were beheaded and, and spewed gushes of blood. We threw bowls of Cheerios and milk at the audience. We set fire to the stage. And it was basically a punk rock puppet show. This was 77, 78. Uh, punk rock was exploding. I couldn't play a guitar, so I picked up a puppet. He went on to design puppets for Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's Bullseye. This week, the artist Wayne White is the subject of a new documentary directed by Neil Berkley. If you ever wished you could live in Pee Wee Herman's bizarre and amazing playhouse, well, Wayne's the man responsible for that dream. The members of Antibalas talk with me about their big influence and one of my favorite musicians of all time, the Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti. Plus, comedy from Brent Weinbach. Stick em up. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we're joined by our favorite culture critics to recommend things that are worth your time. This week, comic books with our friend Alex Albin from the comic book show Live in New York and MTV Geek, and our friend Brian Heater, who has recently been made comic book columnist at boingboing.net. Hey, Brian and Alex, how you guys doing? Great. Pretty good. Alex, let's start with you. You're recommending The Manhattan Projects, Volume 1. This sounds like a, a really interesting premise. The The idea essentially is that the Manhattan Project wasn't just to build the atomic bomb. Yeah, it's they have the atomic bomb research going on on the first floor, and that's the idea is to create something so horrible that nobody would question what's going on in the basement. And what's actually going on in the basement is that every major scientist is exploring the most ridiculous super science and sci-fi projects you can possibly imagine. And pretty much everybody from Joseph Oppenheimer down to Albert Einstein has a horrible, awful secret, more awful than anything you could possibly imagine. (laughs) I'll spoil the first issue for you, which focuses on Joseph Oppenheimer. It turns out he's not Joseph Oppenheimer at all. He's his own twin that ate Joseph Oppenheimer so he could absorb his knowledge. <laughs> well, that sounds like a lot of fun. It's great. I mean, it's written by Jonathan Hickman, who's one of the smartest writers in the industry. He also designs the books. The art by Nick Patera and Chris Peter is also totally gorgeous. And they do an amazing job of playing around with color in the book as well. I mean, again, with the Joseph Oppenheimer example, there's different colors that pop up for each alternate Joseph Oppenheimer. And you don't really realize those themes until... The reveal that I totally spoiled happens at the end of the book, uh, and it's the same throughout the issues. Brian, you recommend a more, well, a less ridiculous comic called The Voyeurs by Gabrielle Bell. This is a sort of classic uh, autobiographical comic, it seems like. It's classical in the sense that, that, you know, Gabrielle 
really brings her sketch pad everywhere she goes. And this is kind of a collection of those stories, which over the years have appeared in her autobiographical book, Lucky. Uh, a lot of her stuff is entrenched in uh, magical realism a little bit, so uh, things tend to kind of go off the rails a little bit. There are some fantastical elements. It's really, in a sense, a, a story of this artist sort of struggling to make her own in New York City. And then it just sort of takes a turn all of a sudden. It, it goes into sort of incredibly strange and unexpected places and, and kind of unravels over the uh, course of the story. Brian Heater recommends The Voyeurs by Gabrielle Bell. He is the comics columnist for BoingBoing.net, among other jobs. Alex Zalbin recommends The Manhattan Projects, Volume 1, written by Jonathan Hickman. You can find Alex at the live show in New York, Comic Book Live. You can also find him on MTV Geek, and he is the writer behind the recently kickstarted comic series Detective Honey Bear. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. In 1970, the Nigerian band leader Fela Kuti decided to create a new type of music. It was a synthesis of African pop and American jazz and funk with a generous helping of fearless politics. He sang in pidgin English because he wanted to create a pan-African movement. Kuti called the new sound Afrobeat, and he became one of the greatest African popular musicians of the 20th century. 28 years later in New York, my guest Martin Perna founded Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra. The band synthesized Kuti's pan-African sound and the multi-ethnic soul and salsa legacy of New Yorican legend Eddie Palmieri. Since then, they've released five albums, anchored the Broadway show Fela, and helped bring Afrobeat to listeners around the world. Antibalas' newest record is self-titled. Here's the first single, Dirty Money. Dirty, not dirty money, oh. Perna plays saxophone in the band, and we're also joined by another founding member, Jordan McLean, who plays trumpet. Guys, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm going to get into the formation of the band and stuff in just a minute, but um, as I was listening to that record, I was struck by, as I often am when I listen to Fela Kuti's music, the power of this instrument, the baritone saxophone which is one that you don't hear a lot, especially in pop music. Martin, t- tell me a little bit about like what makes that instrument special. Um, it gives you a lot of back problems. <laughs> <laughs> so it It's takes big, us, right? Like how, how big are we talking about? It's, um, it's about the size of a six-year-old, <laughs> an uh, average size six-year-old, not too heavy. 
Uh, it's about 30 pounds or so. In, in many ways, it's, the, it's that bottom end. It's that driving force. And so, you know, there's electric bass and some congas and the bass drum that are low-pitched. But it has that kind of honking sound. You know, particularly the way I play it, I'm kind of un- unrefined. There's something really powerful about the sound of that instrument that, you know, because the saxophone is, you know, the saxophone is like a human voice-like instrument. It was, you know, originally created to sound like a, a person singing. And the depth of the sound of that instrument sort of roars when it's played, and even in a really big ensemble. That's part of it. I mean, there, in in that particular song we just heard, um, "Dirty Money." A, a lot of what we do when we do the horn parts is really spend a lot of time splitting them up into different voices, so it's not everybody playing the same thing. That happens sometimes in this sort of unison chorus, but then a lot of times there are these dialogues or micro dialogues between two horns doing one thing and the other two doing another thing, or in this case, I'm doing one thing. There's like three. It's almost split into three different pieces of conversation that are happening. How many people does uh, Antibalas tour with right now? Right now we're touring with 11, and in the early days we actually took as many as 15 people. That's huge, and what's amazing to me about that huge number for a touring pop band is that it's dwarfed by some of the bands that Fela played with over the years. Like He would would sometimes have 30 people playing on stage, Mm -hmm. and the that seems to have a really significant role in what the music sounds like because these aren't all just people you know it's not like a Phil Spector wall of sound where everyone's playing the same thing to make it sound as big as possible mm-hmm. in in many ways it's uh you know sort of like mole in the sense that in mole there's you know it's this brown kind of goopy sauce, but there's over 21 ingredients in it, you know, that you wouldn't even know, you know, from raisins to almonds to star anise to all these other things. And it's 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 really like that. And if one of those things is missing, it still sounds all right, but it's not the same thing. first heard Afrobeat in that house of my childhood best friend because his dad was a drummer and played in, in world when it was everything was called world music. <laughs> he played in world music bands, right? But you guys founded this band before Afrobeat was widely known in the United States. Tell me a little bit about how each of you came to this genre of music. I came to Afrobeat, I think the first time I saw Fela's name was in 1991. I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I was really into rap music. And particularly around the late 80s, when there started to be a lot more sample, the records were constructed of all these beautiful jazz and soul music samples, I started to get the cassettes and look through the liner notes and figure out where they were getting the samples from. And there was one group called X-Clan from Brooklyn, and they sampled Sorrow, Tears, and Blood by Fela. Ah... 
And I just made a note of it. And at that time in the 90s, you could, if you were lucky, find four or five of his records in circulation in the States. And uh, I started digging. What about for you, Jordan? I first heard Fela's music in London in uh, 1997. Uh, I was invited to be a, a member of a band for a party called the African Anarchists. And it was actually three Nigerians living in London, uh, Keziah Jones. Actually, he and I met on the street uh, of London, uh, and he was already making a, a name for himself as a, as a pop musician and as a legendary street performer in Paris. He invited me to this party, and it turned out it was an all-night Afrobeat party. And uh, just danced to Fela's music all night, and it was, you know, it was like... Uh, Duke Ellington and James Brown and all, so many so many musics that I loved even even classical music you know I always think of Fela as Africa's greatest composer I hear Beethoven and Mahler in in the parts and the integrity of the construction of Fela's music so it just really drew me in It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Martine Perna and Jordan McLean are members of the Afrobeat band Antibalas. It's a big instrumental group playing a fusion of jazz, funk, and African rhythms in the tradition of Fela Kuti. Antibalas has a new self-titled record out now. Martine, I, I was really uh, surprised and interested to read that part of the impetus of founding the band was that you were hanging out and listening to Eddie Palmieri, who's a famous salsa musician from New York, mostly mostly working in the 1970s, most notably. And the thing that I that it made me think about was the way that the Pan-Africanism of Fela Kuti's music was reflected in a sort of Pan-Americanism of New York salsa music, mm-hmm. that this was, you know, that salsa was a common language among people from all these different countries in the Americas, including people from the United States, mm-hmm. um, and that Fela was trying to create something similar to that for Africans. It's not something that a lot of people talk about when they read up on us, because usually the his, you know, people like to flatten it. I'm happy that you are bringing it up, because in a lot of ways I see what Antibalas and our sort of extended musical family of funk and soul people in New York, I see what we're doing and the moment that we started doing it really akin to this New York salsa movement of the late 60s and early 70s. And what they were doing was essentially picking up on, for for them, Arsenio Rodriguez was their fella. He was the creator of modern son music in Cuba, um, died penniless here in L.A. in 1972. He was a blind tresero that basically put together the modern son sound that grew into mambo and modern salsa. And in the beginning, we were trying to kind of have a much more eclectic repertoire that borrowed just as much from Afrobeat as it did from Afro-Caribbean music. And it was a little bit too much terrain to cover. So within the first year, we released set our focus more on Afrobeat and also in in particular you hear a lot of 60s and 70s Ethiopian music influence as well which is a whole other story 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests, Martin Perna and Jordan McLean, are two of the founders of the Antibalas Afrobeat Orchestra. Let's hear another song from their new album, which is called Antibalas. This song is called Sare Kon Kon, Running Fast. Yes. Got it. <laughs> Gabriel Roth, the founder of Daptone Records, who um, produced your first couple records at this most recent one, is famous for his um, extraordinary commitment to the recording aesthetics of uh, of a bygone day. <laughs> you know, he's he's famous for recording on an eight track analog setup. Um, and, you know, recreating the sound as, you know, the sound aesthetics as well as the musical uh, concepts of, um, you know, music from past eras, especially soul music from the 60s and early 70s. I wonder what that part of the process means to you, that you are in part also, uh, you're not just creating something that's inspired by this musical movement, but also the aesthetics of the recording are inspired by those recordings' aesthetics. It's, it's not just a vibe either. I mean, you should see Gabe Roth cut tape. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I mean, what he does with a razor blade. It's really inspiring uh, because we can play live together in the studio, you know, have four horns around one microphone and just hit the tape really hard and you go back into the control room and you listen to it and it sounds like what most of the music that we all listen to coming up, like the music that inspires us. So that's that's kind of the most uh, amazing part of, of this process of working like this is that you get that that response from the tape that you just... You, you can't. You don't get that from most digital recordings. So, the the aesthetic is one thing, but it's really uh, it's a sensation more than anything. It's a visceral response, uh, just as a player and 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 as a listener. I think we all kind of subconsciously know that music that was recorded this way just sounds sounds richer. There's more of a unity to it. It it demands more from the performers because everybody has to nail it when you're playing it, and uh, in 
today's digital age when you're you know doing something on Pro Tools, if you're playing some complicated phrase, all you have to do is play it right once and then they just loop it over and over again. So, so much of this modern digital music that we're hearing that sounds quote-unquote perfect is actually so imperfect and it's like this digital Frankenstein, mm -hmm. you know, whereas so much of what we love was nailed so beautifully by the artist or, you know, in the chance moments where there is a mistake, it makes it all that much more special, you know, like a little bug and a piece of amber or something like that. The the intentionally uh, undone stitch in a, in a Persian carpet, you know, it's... We will oftentimes just leave it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I, uh, yeah, I might have blown that, but you know, it sounds good. Leave it. More with Auntie Ballas after a break. Plus, comedian Brent Weinbach gives you a little bit of help with your line readings. Like this. Stick em up. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. MaximumFun.org is proud to support the San Francisco Comedy and Burrito Festival, a weekend of comedy and burritos, October 11th through 13th, featuring stand-up comedy and live tapings of Jordan Jesse Go and International Waters. More information and tickets are available at sfcomedyandburritofestival.com. Have a favorite bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Martin Perna and Jordan McLean, both musicians influenced by the Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti. Perna founded the Afrobeat orchestra Antibalas. His bandmate McLean is a musical director for the Broadway show about Fela Kuti's life, Fela. Do you guys think about the different meaning that making these records has in 2012 rather than in, you know, 1974? Um, when, you know, Fela was making them as, uh, you know, as an attempt to create a super best-selling style of music that would make him the pop music king of Africa. And you guys are making records in a style that was created 40 years ago. You know, as Jordan said, it's, it, people like Miles Davis recognized it as a very modern style ahead of its time. And I, I think even now, after 14 years of playing it and being five full-length records and seeing the press and the way people respond to it is generally positive, but they still don't get it at all. And so that's what <laughs> makes me feel like, all right, cool, we're doing something right. <laughs> you know, it's frustra as frustrating as it is to read something and being like, this is very repetitive. It's like, yes, like every single piece of music <laughs> from Africa is supposed to be repetitive. <laughs>
Jordan, I want to ask you about uh, the stage production fallout, which you worked on as, as associate music director. I saw this thing in New York, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, just go, if you have the opportunity to go see it, you should really go see it because it will blow your mind. In, in this case, you are literally trying to fill the shoes of Fela Kuti and his band. Uh, you're not just trying to create something in the spirit of that, but you have a guy on stage playing Fela Kuti. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to face down that challenge of, of doing that, and not just doing that, but doing that for an audience that, let's say, may not be going into it as already a Fela Kuti fan. Yeah, not, not perhaps a, more of a Nathan Lane fan, for example. Truly, ninety-five percent or more of the audiences for Fela had probably never heard of him before this. But uh, what was a big help and uh, part of the brilliant vision of of uh, our producer uh, was to have another, in a way, standalone genius like Bill T. Jones direct the show. That, in a way, tempered Fela's singular genius, because anybody who's ever worked with Bill T. Jones or has experienced Bill T. Jones's work knows that he's going to put his stamp <laughs> on this show. He 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 uh, he deconstructed Fela's life, the music, the legacy, the entire ethos around Fela. Everything was there to be examined and deconstructed, and then built back up from there. So that's really how we did it. Well, I, I want to ask a very similar question to you, Martine, which is. When people come to see Antibalas and, you know, they're the kind of person who, uh, you know, next week is going to go see Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, or is next week is going to go see Quetzal, or, you know, next week is going to go see the Dap Kings or whatever. What do you want them to take away from that experience? That's a good question. I would like to th- them to take away that we put in everything that we had. We gave them everything. And if that's all that they take away and that they want to come back and see us or that there's some heart connection, some sort of alchemy. I, I, I look at a performance like changing the state of matter from ice to water or from water to vapor. And if, and if it gets to vapor, that's great. Sometimes, you know, we'll play like the other day we played Outside Lands in, Chicago, in uh, San Francisco and we could see our breath on stage, an outdoor stage, it was freezing. So the best that you can do is sort of move a block of ice into a puddle of water. And maybe there's a few particularly hot individuals that are a little bit warmer, you know, but it's that idea of transformation. And when that really happens with enough people, it, it becomes transcendental. And I think we hit the stage every night looking for that high. Martin, yeah. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure. I'm Our pleasure, Jesse. Thank you so much. Martin Perna and Jordan McLean are founding members of Antibalas. Their new album is self-titled. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Brent Weinbach does stand-up comedy, but to call him a stand-up comic wouldn't even come close to describing the the totality of what he does. His past records have included lots of tracks recorded alone in a studio, comedy bits that were weird, dark, brooding, and sort of reminiscent of the late-night radio stylings of Joe Frank. 
Weinbach's new record, though, is different. He recorded it at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles and gave it an apt title, Mostly Live. But he's not the kind of guy who just gets on stage and tells jokes. In fact, he gave one lucky audience member an impromptu acting lesson. I've been trying to become more involved in acting because acting is a professional way of playing make-believe, and that's fun. (laughs) And recently I've been working on a dramatic scene in which I play the victim of a robbery. And I thought that tonight I could perhaps workshop this scene in front of you. How about it? Would you be willing to play the role of the robber? You can sit right there and do it. Yes. Great. So you're the robber, and your line is, stick him up. Okay. You memorize your part? Yes. I know it's a small part, but I think you can do a lot with it. (laughs) And I'm the victim, and I'm scared. All right? All right, here we go. Action. Stick him up. Uh, but give me more energy. A little more energy. Stick him up! I'm thinking more like this. Stick him up. Stick him up. I'm thinking more like this. Stick him up. Like this. Stick em up. Stick up. Like this. Stick em up. Stick em up. Stick em up. Stick em up. Think, I want you to think of a, a hardcore head honcho mafioso gangster. It's very serious and very intimidating, like this. Stick em up! 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 I'm just, I'm not believing it. Acting is reacting. And for me to be believable, you need to be believable. Are you familiar with the works of Vidal Sassoon? If you don't look good, we don't look good. That's something important to bear in mind when tackling a dramatic scene like this. Let's try it one more time from the top. You're doing great. Let's take it from the top. Let's do it one more time. Here we go. Action. Stick em up! How about I play the robber? We'll switch it up. I'll play the robber. You play the victim. We'll try it that way once. Here we go. Okay, action. Stick them up. Hands up. Higher. Higher. Fly. Fly. Sit back down. Actually fly. Bang, you're dead. That was good work. We finished the scene. Brent Weinbach is a Los Angeles-based comedian. His new album of stand-up is called Mostly Live. It's available from A Special Thing Records and on iTunes. You can find Weinbach's tour dates at brentweinbach.com. 
After a break, Wayne White and his punk rock puppetry. Puppets were beheaded and spewed blood. We threw bowls of Cheerios and milk at the audience. We set fire to the stage. This was 77, 78. Uh, punk rock was exploding. I couldn't play a guitar, so I picked up a puppet. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio. International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. If you've got burning opinions about Bullseye, come discuss them with other fans on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Wayne White's name may not be familiar to you, but his work likely is. He won three Emmy Awards for helping to design the kitschy world of Pee-wee's Playhouse. He art-directed two of the most visually striking music videos ever produced, the insanely surreal animated clip for Peter Gabriel's Big Time and the Georges Méliès-inspired trip to the moon in the Smashing Pumpkins' Tonight Tonight. He left commercial art behind in the 90s and has become a widely exhibited fine artist. His word paintings feature boldly painted typographs over thrift store lithographs. Like all his work, they mix humor with a dark, ironic edge, as phrases like doing movie stars and painting masterpieces or fried chicken spill over pastoral scenes. White's here with me, along with the director of a new documentary about his life and work, Neil Berkeley. Here's a scene from the movie called Beauty is Embarrassing. White shows the camera a few bits and pieces in his home studio. This is a prop from the Smashing Pumpkins video, Tonight Tonight. This is the spaceship that they go to the moon on. This is the, whoa, Cheerio sculpture, F.U. Shack. Palm tree frond that looks like a woman's crotch. This is Peter Gabriel, big time video from 87. Things in a very fragile state now. It's been a long, wild ride for me. You know, everybody's like, choose one thing and do it well, my son. I'll go. And it's like, that, you know? I want to try everything I can. You know, I want to take this painting idea and see if you can do a puppet version of it. I want to take the cartooning and turn it into a set. I want to take the set and turn it back into a painting. That's a true pioneer. That's a true person who is never satisfied, always wants to know what's the next thing. How do I understand myself or, or the universe more? That's the voice of Paul Rubens, of course. Wayne White, Neil Berkeley, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Great to see you. Thanks for having us. Will that be beeped? Are you allowed to say Peter Gabriel on the radio? (laughs) (laughs) And we're off. So let me ask you you this, Neil. I'm going to start with you. You directed this film. Yes. Um, So obviously Wayne has done a lot of fascinating things in his career, but, you know, there are thousands of artists across the world who have done fascinating things in their career. So... What was it about Wayne and his career that made you want to make a feature film out of it? Well, I, I always tell part, people that there's there's two parts of the story. There's the resume, which is obviously impressive. I mean, he's had a, had a massive impact on pop culture. But the reason he's doc-worthy or movie-worthy in my mind is that there's the personality. You know, I've known him for about 12 years now, and I've always been interested in him as a person, as a, a guy that's funny, as a raconteur, as a, as a father, as a husband, as a friend. It's just this guy that I know that I knew was magnetic and charming and incredibly inspirational. You know that you just set Wayne up to fail, right? He's sitting yes. right here. <laughs> yes. If he's not magnetic. And I'm a cheap date. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, I want to talk to you uh, about 
um, puppets first yes. because it's in puppets that you made your name and career at the beginning. Yes. Was it always the plan to make puppets? Like, no. how do you end up making puppets? Well, well, uh, paradoxically, I've always sort of hated puppets. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked puppets as a kid, really. I never played with them. I never had a puppet theater. What, now, what do you hate about puppets? Well, I just hate that they're so damn cute, you know? <laughs> first of all, let me first say, I have nothing but respect for Jim Henson. I think he was a genius, and I think I have, uh, I think he's a great artist, but I'm really sick of the Muppets, and I'm really sick of every puppet in the world doing a spin on the Muppet look, you know, the, the felt body and the two round ping-pong eyeballs. That, t- that is so over, you know? And so I never thought about puppets at all up until one day in college. I was with my friend Mike Quinn and his Dodge Dart, and I looked in the back seat, and he had these crappy blood-stained hand puppets. I said, what are these? And he goes, oh, I, I did those puppets to uh, get out of writing a term paper from a forestry class. This is down in Tennessee at Middle Tennessee State University. I thought, hmm. Maybe I can get out of writing my term paper for art history if I do a puppet show. <laughs> and that's how my puppet career was born. Mike and I staged this sh- puppet show for my art history class called Punk and Juicy. And it was basically a punk rock puppet show. This was 77, 78. Uh, I, punk rock was exploding. I, I couldn't play a guitar, so I picked up a puppet. Well, now, what does that mean when you say that it was a punk rock puppet show? It was assaultive on the audience. First of all, there was a punk, <laughs> there was a punk rock uh, uh, soundtrack. Uh, the puppets all were beheaded and, and spewed gushes of blood. We threw bowls of Cheerios and milk at the audience. We set fire to the stage. We destroyed the stage. Oh, we thought we were wild. We were out of control. A major threat. You you worked on this show in uh, Chattanooga, where you're from. This local PBS show. Called, you're going to have to say the name of it. So well, actually, I didn't write it down. Yeah, actually, it was Nashville. Oh, Nashville, excuse yeah, me. Where I moved after I graduated from Middle Tennessee State University in 79. And I, got a, I moved to New York, but while I was up in New York City, a friend of mine had got, in Nashville had gotten a job at a local PBS station, and they wanted to do a kid's show to teach uh, first graders music. And the show was called Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose. So I went back down from New York to Nashville and lived there for three or four months and built this show from scratch. Uh, sets and puppets and everything. It was my first professional uh, TV job. And I took that portfolio with me back up to New York City in January of 86 and got a job on uh, PB's Playhouse with that portfolio. I want to talk for a second about Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose. Let's, did I yes. get that right? You I got think, it I right. Think I did. Okay. So I watched uh, a whole episode of this on YouTube yeah. a few minutes ago, and it's amazing. <laughs> In fact, I, I want to play, uh, let's play a little clip from it. Oh, wow. Hey, Mr. Bobble. Yeah. You know what I'd like to sing? What's that? I would really like to sing Little Tommy Tinker. Oh, I bet you would. Do you know Little Tommy Tinker, boys and girls? Well, it's fun to sing because you can also see something happen in that round. It sounds like this. Let's try it together. Okay. Let's sing it for them. Listen now. It sounds like this. Little Tommy Tinker sat upon a clinker and he began That clip's going to be weird because that show doesn't sound like it looks. That's okay. So that's why the reason I wanted to play a clip from it is because the look of this show, it looks as crazy as the Playhouse did on Pee Wee's Playhouse, but it is... In in other ways, you know, this woman at the center of it could really just be 
an elementary school music teacher Absol- she in was, 1958 which she was. or 1962. As she was. She was in elementary school. She on her on her off when she was not doing the show, she was traveling and making live appearances at school, teaching kids music. That was her whole life and her vocation. I mean, she seems like a nice and talented lady, but it is a weird yes. combination. It is a disconcerting <laughs> combination. It's kind of like the uh, Groucho Marx. What's the what was Groucho's foil? Um, uh, oh, Margaret Dumont. It was yeah. She was kind of my Margaret Dumont. You know, I was kind of like sending it up, but yet she played it straight. You know, I pres- I put her in this t- cabinet of Dr. Caligari German expressionistic world, <laughs> and yet she was playing it straight. You know, and yeah, it is the prototype for Pee Wee's Playhouse in a lot of ways. You can t- see it in the puppets, the talking stove, uh, the hound dog. Uh, they all uh, mutated into like Dirty Dog and Cherry and stuff on Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are the artist Wayne White and director Neil Berkeley. White's done a lot of work for music videos and TV, and he's probably best known for his designs for Pee Wee Herman's incredible magical playhouse. He's also the subject of a new documentary, which is in theaters now, directed by Neil Berkeley. It's called Beauty is Embarrassing. I want to play a little clip from the movie of you talking about your puppets and your puppetry just when you'd been hired to to work on Pee-wee's Playhouse. I was put in charge of the puppets, stuff like Flory and Dirty Dog. I didn't know about building puppets. You know, I just did it my own crazy, funky, homemade way. Like to build Dirty Dog, I got an oven mitt and just glued foam rubber around the oven mitt. But I carved Randy out of a solid piece of white pine and his head weighed about 15 pounds. <laughs> and it would keep turning around on step, on camera. It would start to move, start moving, and it had a mind of its own. It would go like exorcist. It would go all the way around his, and cut. What's wrong? It's like, I don't know what's wrong. I knew exactly what was wrong. I didn't know what I was doing, what was wrong. I was, I mean, I, I um, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse was very important to me in my life, and I did not know the... I did not know that Pee Wee's Playhouse had started in New York and then moved to Los Angeles. I always associated it with a kind of, you know, Los Angeles-y ironic spook of the 50, spoof of the 50s and 60s. Right. Um, but I learned only from watching the film that the first season was literally made in a, in a loft yes. in New York. Mm-hmm. Down on Lower Broadway near Canal Street. It was done in New York because Broadcast Arts got the contract to do it, and they were super hot at the time. MTV had just come out, and they did all those iconic MTV logos, and so they got the job, and Paul came to New York to do it. And uh, it, was a, it was blood, sweat, and tears. It really was trying to do it in a loft. It was crazy to do it that way. Make, make a loft a soundstage and build a set. It was crazy. What was your mandate on the show? What were you supposed to be making? My my job, I was sort of uh, shuttled off to Puppetland uh, because I had been doing all these crazy puppet shows. And, and, and I lied and said I was a puppet master. <laughs> Put my hand in on the set, too. My specialty on the set was a lot of the wallpapers, uh, the, um, the designs on the walls and a few pieces of furniture here and there. Neil, did, did Pee Wee's Playhouse have an impact on you and in, in your life? Oh, of course. Yeah, no, I, when I met Wayne, I mean, I would bug him to do voices and talk, tell me stories. I was a huge fan of that show, watched it every week. You Even, guys are the Pee Wee generation. Yeah, I mean, anyone our age was affected by that, whether we knew who did it or not. Beekman's World, Shining Time Station, all those shows. I mean, his whole career tracked my interest in pop culture from eight years old to today. One of the things about Pee Wee's Playhouse that I, I remember 
you know, I uh, my parents were divorced and had fifty fifty custody, but except that Friday nights and Saturday mornings I was at my mom's house. So I would watch Pee Wee with my mom every week. And the thing that <laughs> the thing that in retrospect seems crazy is if I think of other shows, Pee Wee was the show that I loved, and if I think of the shows that I liked. Um, that were on, you know, around Pee Wee, you know, like, I don't know, Heathcliff or Garfield, you know, U.S. Acres. The contrast is so intense. Yeah. Although there was a very hip show that came on right after Pee Wee, John Krikvaluski's Mighty Mouse. I don't know if you remember watching that. Yeah, I did. That was that was one kind of hip show. But yeah, man, it stood out. It was crazy. Uh, It was crazy. Even got on the air. But uh, Pee-wee was so hot at the time. He had just finished Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton's first feature. And he had, you know, he had power, a lot of power then. And it was amazing that that thing was on the air. It, it's one of those, I was talking to Wayne yesterday, it's one of those weird things that, you know, if you're kind of, if there's not, it feels like you're in the club, like, hey, I like Pee-wee's too, but everyone liked it. It's one of those things that was very cool, very hip but still cool to like, you know, and that, that's very rare. Usually there's some sort of angst against, th- against things that are very popular, but, you know, everyone wants to say, I love that show when I was a kid because everyone did. I mean, everyone our age was totally into that. There's an interesting combination in that show especially of reverence for the kind of, um, you know, kitschy Americana, 19, 1950s, early 1960s, children's world. Yes. You know, toys and play and scooters and things like that um, with both a sort of a, a, an ironic edge, but also a, there's a there's like an there's a part of it that's kind of angry. We were angry young men. I certainly was. I mean, yeah. And it was that New York energy also, you know. And it was a very hard struggle to make that set and that show in that horrible uh, loft we were working in. I mean, it was was dreary. Behind the scenes, it was just like a, a horrible ghetto, you know. I mean, it was just like crappy, dirty. And then there was this shining little set in the middle of this filth <laughs> and to, you know and yeah i think that new york energy kind of leaked through there i think it got brighter and happier when it moved to la in in many kind of ways but uh we were underground comic cartoonists you know we were the heirs of robert crumb and the san francisco scene so that underground comic sensibility was definitely there and you know like you said we were also t- uh, children of the 60s we'd grown up with local kid shows we loved toys from the 60s and I, I especially thought of little golden books a lot when I was designing the set. But, yeah, there was that New York Street energy there, definitely. What about little golden books specifically? Uh, the illustrations. I, I wish I could r- rattle off some of the illustrators' names, but I can't. The only one I can really think of is Mary Blair. But I loved little golden books of the 50s and 60s, you know, with the golden spine. I have a whole shelf full of them. And I, that was one of my guiding lights. It's like I wanted to bring those illustrations into 3D and make them live. Because I remember those very, very strongly when I was a kid. Also, Viewmaster, early Viewmaster tableaus of cartoon scenes built in three dimensions. Those two things were on my mind a lot also. I had I had one of those childhood rushes as I was watching the show. And in the there's a lot of – I mean, watching the film, excuse me. There's There's some scenes of sort of home video cameras of backstage. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's not a sad or sentimental portion of the film at all. 
but for a second, I thought I was going to start crying because the emotion was so strong wow. from that childhood association. And in, in part, I think that is what Pee Wee was about for the people that were making it. It was about what it what those childhood associations are and sort of playing with the power of them. The, those those that footage is one of the many layers of discovery that was peeled back. Wayne shot all that footage, uh, and nobody's ever seen that before. This is the first time people are seeing that behind the scenes. I went over one day, and he had a box full of tapes, and said, "Yeah, I carried a video camera around, so there's probably good stuff on here. Check it out." And there was 60 hours of just gold that no one's. At. He's part like you. You probably hardly even seen it. In no, the last I haven't 25 seen it. Five years. No, I haven't looked at it since the 80s. Um, and you're right about the strong the. The deep, deep childhood uh, uh, connection there. I mean, we all had that same feeling when we did it. We were all just, and we still are, you know, living the the inner child thing. You know, childhood is. I think childhood is central to any artist's sensibility. I want to play another clip from the film Beauty Is Embarrassing. My guests, by the way, are uh, the artist and designer Wayne White and Neil Berkeley, the director of the movie. Um, in this clip from the movie, some folks uh, from Wayne's family and, and his some friends growing up talk about uh, what he was like as a kid. Most of everything that he did and learned was probably a lot of that was self-taught. I mean, there wasn't a lot of influence in that little town. I think artists uh, in that community would have been seen as curious. And I think the better the artist was, the more curious they became. I really couldn't talk to him about art, I don't guess, because I didn't understand it that much, but we didn't really know how to relate to him about it, I don't guess. So my high school teacher, the one time he did try to directly kind of help me, I'd done these Salvador Dali drawings. He showed them to my uh, principal, B.E. Edwards, it's a real old school southern hard ass. He sits me down and he goes, your art teacher gave me some of your drawings you did. He pulls the surrealist drawings out and goes, those do not look like the drawings of a red-blooded American boy. <laughs> <laughs> he can't have said that to you. Absol- That's impossible. Absolutely true story. That's the environment I grew up in. Yeah, he was a hard ass, too, boy. <laughs> B.E. Yeah, he hated my guts. I was a long hair. We, I was a freak. We called them freaks back then. And uh, he had it out for me. And you know what? I loved every minute of it. <laughs> I loved disgusting him and, and, and pushing his buttons. I've, I've relied on that kind of negative reinforcement my whole life, sort of kicking against things, <laughs> defining myself against something rather than being nurtured by things. I, I didn't get any nurturing as an artist at all when I was growing up. My parents were tolerant of it, and I had a few good teachers, but mostly it was just alienation and, 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 and rebellion. And it was the 70s, too, when everything was kind of falling apart. It doesn't seem like you defined yourself against the place that you were from, though, which I think a lot of artists do. Yeah, you know, ultimately, I have a very soft spot for the South. I mean, it's my home. It's where I was a little baby. You know, it's where I was an innocent child. I'm a sentimental guy. And um, I, I, I love the South, but it gave me a hard time. As I, I, had, I had to leave the South to be an artist. So there's this paradox and there's this bittersweetness and, and mixed feelings. It's funny that you say that you're a sentimental guy. You describe yourself as a sentimental guy. I mean, much of your art is about sort of distrusting sentiment. True. I mean, especially, you know, your word paintings, which are often take very sentimental photographs and then yeah. overlay upon them 
filth, there's, pure filth. There's one. In, <laughs> there's one in the movie, um, and I guess maybe we'll have to bleep out one of these words, words so it's not that bad. Uh, there's one in the movie that you say is about um, your experiences with comedy writers, and it it just says dick jokes in Sherman Oaks. Yeah, dick jokes from Sherman Oaks. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, like everybody that's been around for a while, and I certainly have, I've been rattled by the world. I've been made cynical and bitter by 25 years in Hollywood. Who wouldn't be, you know? And uh, I don't like sentimental art, definitely. I don't think it has a place in art. That's not what art's about. Art's about getting at truths. And sentiment is another kind of thing. But as a person, as a a father and and as a husband— I'm a soft, I'm a big soft-hearted guy, but when it comes to art, I want to like have a steely eye. You speak really passionately in the movie Wayne about um your strong feeling that being funny is a desirable quality in yeah. fine art. Well, I, I my little soundbite is my mission is to bring uh humor into fine art. Not fine art funny, but real world funny, like Richard Pryor funny, stuff that's really funny, not some droll little art joke, you know. And I think humor is an undervalued quality in the art world, in the so-called high art world. Uh, I think – and of course, maybe it should be considered outcast because that's what makes humor funny. You can't analyze it and you can't put it on a pedestal or it loses its power. But – Ultimately, I think humor is, a, is our most sacred uh, quality. I think, first of all, it's really hard to get somebody to laugh, much harder to get somebody to laugh than to make them feel sad. And laughter is deep. Humor is deep. It reveals stuff. It reveals truth. It opens people up. And everybody likes to be in a room you know, full of laughing people. That's one of life's greatest joys. So why not elevate it? Why not consider it a, a higher form? Well, um, Wayne and Neil, thank you so much for thank you. taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thank you. Wayne White is the subject. Neil Berkeley, the director of the new film, Beauty is Embarrassing. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Hip-hop has always had mixtapes. Local DJs cutting and blending local hits, sprinkling in freestyles and blends, shout-outs, sometimes signature sound effects. These days, though, mixtapes are dominated by single artists, to the detriment of the form, I think. When DJs chose the records, they did it with the audience in mind. But it's rare for an artist to have the self-discipline to find the wheat and the chaff of their output. Usually, instead of being a collection of amazing, rare, once-in-a-lifetime moments, they're the opposite. Basically, a collection of stuff that wasn't good enough to charge money for. So most artist-focused mixtapes are a one-time listen for me. There is one tape, though, that I've been returning to again and again since it came out about a year ago. And that's ASAP Rocky's Live Love ASAP. Uh, got hands. How real is this? Rocky and his crew are the great hope of New York rap. Since the rap industry and the national media are both New York-based, there is always a great hope of New York rap. Like a lot of the current generation of young rappers, he's not remarkable so much for his microphone skills as for his point of view. And for an aesthetic that feels, to me at least, completely new. Tap, tap. 
be that pretty girl on me. Harlem's what I'm rapping. Tell my chicken with the diction. We gon' make it in a second. Never disrespect it. Plus, I'm well connected with this coke that I imported. Just important as your president. Swagger so impressive. And I don't need a necklace, but these bitches get impressed when you pull up in that seven. I'm sixes, I'm beans. I get skits the fresh years. Rav Simmons, Rick Owens, usually what I'm dressed in. On songs like this one, Peso, Rocky's beats mixed slowed down DJ Screw style vocal samples with beats that are somehow both beautiful and, and hard as a rock. Listen to the beautiful beat producer Clams Casino made for my favorite track on the record, What's Up? Take away the crack of the snare, and, and it's as much Steve Reich as it is the RZA. What's up? What's up? Rocky himself seems to be interested in something new. He's obsessed with high fashion, for one thing. You don't hear a lot of rappers bragging about buying clothes by the cult Belgian designer Rolf Simone, especially ones from Harlem. He defines himself as both of the hood and apart from it, inhabiting both the streets and the kind of world that you imagine the models in Vogue layouts live in, like with a lot of cocaine and beautiful people and staring off into the middle distance clothes get weirder money get longer pretty begin hang your hair up the nerve of this dude when i'm cool as a fan 40 ounce full of proof live love asap is an engrossing swirl of sound it's undoubtedly a hip-hop record it bangs but it's also ethereal somehow just out of reach most deaf once rap, it's intimate and distant. And live love ASAP. It works. That's my outshot. Back in this bitch, motherfucker. Yeah, it's me. Space goes first. And I put your kid to sleep. Me and my twin at it again with this funk. Sipping on gin, living in sin, lean in the trunk. R.I.P. the screw, rest in peace to pimp. See, shout out to that H and that fucking S.U.C. My big brain is perfect. Everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. They said, That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our interns are Lindsay Pavlis and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You should like us on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter, at Bullseye. And you can find me on Twitter, at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember... All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.
Com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.